If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, page 807 in the church Bibles. And in just a moment, we're going to begin reading in verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And while you're turning there, just let me say to you, as always, if you have a question about Jesus Christ or what we have said or sung or read this morning, I would be happy to try to do my best and answer those questions for you when our time this morning is through. And once again, if you're visiting with us, you're very welcome, and we are just certainly glad that you've chosen to worship Christ with us this morning. So we're going to read beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2, and then we are going to seek God's help that we need through prayer. Verse 4, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but, the, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of, his, of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together as we pray. Our gracious God, you have said that a broken and contrite spirit you will not despise. And it is in that measure that we approach your throne of grace and power through Jesus Christ. And though our sins, Father, are worthy of our ultimate suffering, and worthy of the removal of your presence and support, we thank you that our just penalty was paid fully by your precious Son on Calvary's cross. Therefore, Father, because of Jesus, will you please grant to each of this morning, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to understand these verses, that we would be given the grace to love you with our mind, and so we would love you then more dearly and then follow you more closely. And as always, God, may in the foolishness of what is preached, may you be pleased to save. Father, we depend on you now for everything. And so we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. Well, Paul has written to God's church in Corinth. The church has a difficulty. The difficulty is disunity. The byproduct of their disunity is by and large immaturity. And if you would just allow your eyes to move forward for just a moment, you'll see in the beginning of chapter 3, Paul is concerned about what is happening in Corinth 
insofar that those who are in Christ and should be going on in maturity are not. And they needed to be addressed in chapter 3 there as worldly, which Paul labels babies needing milk, unable to digest meat. And their immaturity, and this is very important, their immaturity is not revealed in, in the fact that they have only been Christians a little while. No, their immaturity is revealed in the fact that they are quarrelsome, that they are argumentative, and they are disruptive in the family of God. Therefore, because Christ loves his church in Corinth, he will not forsake his church in Corinth, just as a loving mother would never find herself forsaking her slowly developing child. It's her child. How in the world would she behave otherwise? And so what Paul does then is to apply theology. And again, this is fundamental that we understand this. He applies theology. He expounds the message of Christ and him crucified. And that is God's remedy for their disunity. So two weeks ago, we learned that Paul told the church in Corinth that when he arrived, he was a weak, fearful, trembling man who only had one string to his bow, only one note on his music sheet. You can see it there if your Bible's open. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And God did this, says Paul, again to your Bibles, to clearly show what many people have trouble understanding in these days, that the whole of their salvation is only all of God. That's verse 30 of chapter 1. It's because of God alone that you are in Christ alone. And all those wonderful benefits of being a Christian, namely, verse 30b, Christ, our wisdom from God, Christ is our righteousness, He is our holiness, and Christ is our redemption. Therefore, if you would, yay, Christ! Yay, Christ! And no one else. And can you imagine just for a second, let's say you're a Christian teen, and you're battling with indwelling sin, and you're sometimes winning, but sometimes, probably more often, you're losing. I mean, what, what do you do? Well, I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come into me and rest. Lay down, O weary one. Lay down your head upon my breast. And I came to Jesus as I was, so weary, worn, and sad. And I found in him a resting place. And he has made me glad. Well, what's that? Well, that's the gospel. As opposed to, what in the dickens are you doing? You know, come on, shake it up. You dirty, rotten scoundrel. You're embarrassing your mother and I. Or, well, come over here. We, come, in fact, really come over here. We've got some in-depth, high-level teaching. And we'll help you get right. We can do it. Says John Calvin. Self-justification is the pestilence that most effectively leads to our destruction. So what Paul is doing here, he's taking great pains to explain to his readers that the gospel and all of its effects, God's wisdom, owes nothing absolutely nothing to human wisdom or to a human being or a human personality or human intellect or human methodology in order that no human can boast before God about, well, this is our technique and it, it just, this is it. This is the one. Our methodology. This is, this is the one. Worldly wisdom applied so that no one will boast in themselves or boast about some other terrific man or other terrific woman. Because what Paul is saying here is that if anyone comes to Christ, it will ultimately only be as a result of the Spirit of God moving in the heart of a person as His Son is proclaimed. And that is it. And if you think about that, that's why Paul reminded them in chapter 1, verse 26. Do you think, see it there? 
Think about what you were when you were called. Not much. And then Paul says, chapter 2, verse 1, think about me when I preach to you. Not much. And then think about the fact that by and large, verse 27 of chapter 1, that God chooses the not much to shame the really somethings, to shame the self-assured. Because only God can make dead, lost people alive and converted people. And mature people, spiritual people, understand this. So that you can see in chapter 2 there, beginning around verse 6, we come face to face with the truth that while the Corinthian church may have all kinds of wrong distinctions and divergence, uh, I follow him, I don't like him, I do like her, I don't like them, that's verse 11 of chapter 1, where they might have all kinds of distinctions, God has only one. And the one ultimate distinction that has any real lasting meaning whatsoever is between those who are spiritual and those who are unspiritual. Now, the word for spiritual in the Greek is the word pneumatikos, from the Greek word pneuma, translated spirit. The word unspiritual is the word psychikos, and the reason why I tell you this is where we get, we get our word psyche, as in human psyche, from that word. So you can see it translated in verse 14, the man without the spirit. So psyche here refers to the natural and physical elements of a person, if you would, everything this side of heaven. And that is the distinction. Because the Bible explains to us that the suki, the natural man, lives his life treasuring everything that's carnal, everything that's material, everything that's fleeting, everything that's just now, that we can see with the eyes. But they do not understand, neither are they concerned very much, that there is actually something beyond this realm. Now, certainly they may consider life after death when they get a troubling report from the physician. I mean, who wouldn't? Or say someone dies, especially an untimely death. Or they may think about God in some generic sense and during, you know, different seasons of their life. But by and large, they live in the now of earth with no real meaningful concern about the then of heaven. And, and you'd have to be blind not to look around and see that there is an increasing number of people who do their best to create a heaven on earth being unconvinced that there's actually something beyond this realm. And besides, some of them say, everyone knows if there is a heaven and if there is a God, then a good God is bound to accept a good person doing the best that they can. Now, the Bible and its instruction runs completely counter to that line of thinking. And the verses that we're going to work through this morning teach us and direct us in this way. And the key text of this whole section is verse 14. Do you see it there? The person without the spirit, the sukikos person, does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, for they are spiritually discerned. So what we're going to do is we're going to move through these verses, and we have some headings to help us. If you turn to the back of the worship folder, you'll see them there. And that first heading is the wisdom we speak. And if your Bible's open, you can see that phrase or something like it in verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. And then in verse 7, you see it there? We speak of God's secret wisdom. And so what Paul is doing here, he, he's establishing that there is a false temporal human wisdom. And by its very nature, it opposes all of God's wisdom. It opposes God's gospel. But there is a true, lasting, divine wisdom which actually flows out of the gospel. Think of it this way. This is what Jesus said. What does it profit a man if he gains by his wisdom the whole world 
the material world, the intellectual world, the business world, the athletic world, the sensual world, or even his personal world, where he has fastened a world to his own taste. What does it profit anyone if they have all that but lose their souls? Answer, says Jesus, nothing. And that is the result of human wisdom. It does nothing in light of eternity. It does nothing, nothing in light of the certainty of death and the judgment that is to come. Human wisdom saves no one and is an absolute useless substitute for the gospel. And that's why Paul writes there in verse 6b, it is coming to nothing. Uh, kata argeo is the Greek word. It means it's coming to a point of no consequence. Human wisdom has no upshot. At its peak, it is insufficient. In fact, it's peaked way too early. If you like, it just has laid a great big goose egg. However, God's wisdom, God's wisdom, Christ bore our sins in his body on a tree so that we would die to sin and live for righteousness and enjoy blamelessness as we stand before God's throne. Christ's wisdom covers everything before time, in time, and after time ceases. So you get this distinction of a guy who, 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 who loves his files and clippings and accounts and medals, all that he's earned because of his human wisdom. And Paul says, this is all coming to nothing. It means nothing. It means nothing. At the moment, it, it matters most. But God's wisdom takes care of everything. Says Charles Hodge on this. Paul was not totally abandoning philosophy from the public square, just from the pulpit. Let the dead bury the dead. But do not let them pretend to impart life. And that's the point, isn't it? That, that's the point. All these things that promise life, worldly wisdom. If you do this, if you got that, if you have six of these, if you go there, life, life, life is a big fat lie. A big fat lie. Okay, but we thank God for the advances that bright women and bright men have, have brought to the table. They're wonderful. And we thank God for people's intellectual acumen that, that they have and it helps this world. And we thank God for their commitment to, to know things. But when they come to us as bigger and better and more sufficient and more glorious than God's wisdom in Christ, or even when they give no mention to Jesus, thank you, Jesus, for making everything. Thank you, Jesus, for making human beings, for resources. Thank you, Jesus, for this good thought. When they come to us like God doesn't need to be heeded and he's not even needed, that is when we think things through. And when we think things through, no matter how we may excel on this planet, we're going to end up in a box in the ground or an urn on a shelf. Eventually, that's where we're headed. And then before the bar of God's judgment. I read this article on Friday afternoon, Washington Post. This lady, her name, she's an actress, she's a beautiful actress, Frances McDormand. She said this about her culture. There is no desire to be an adult. No one is supposed to age past 45. Everybody's concern is about a smooth face. The wisdom of man. The wisdom of man is wise only, 1 Corinthians 3.18, by the standards of this age. And the standards of this age, Paul says, is coming to nothing. Everything's going to be zipped up and put away with. So why in the world we just throw ourselves into that? Paul says, don't. Okay. So when you look at those verses, verses 6 and 7 and following, there's some questions that arise out of that. First question is this. Who are the mature Paul speaks of? We speak a message among the mature. Well, who are they? Then question number two. What does he mean by a secret wisdom? 
a wisdom that has been hidden. I mean, on the surface, that's like almost cult talk. Well, let me answer the first question in a second. The first question, who are the mature Paul speaks of, um, is essentially, it's essentially a question probably that some people have trouble with. Because there's a temptation to say that the mature here are only those who are really into Christ. So they're the best and the brightest and they're the, they're the most serious and they're mostly spot on. That's the mature. But the language that Paul uses here in this context does not lend to that whatsoever. The word for mature in the Greek is teleos. It can mean perfect or it can be, mean complete. And what does the Bible teach about every true Christian from heaven's point of view? Every true Christian in Christ is made complete in Christ, right? Every true Christian is dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. And in our fallen flesh, it might not seem so, but it is so. And therefore, thank God that God treats us as so. Because if God treated us as our sins deserve, we would have an empty place right now. However, the word for mature can also refer to a person who has full membership with all the rights and privileges in a group. In other words, they're fully initiated, they're fully in. And that is what Paul is saying here. Because remember, now think, think, think. The problem in the Corinthian church is disunity. My guy, our ways, our group is better than your guy, your ways, and your group times four, right? So why would Paul lead them to another argument? Okay, we have, we have a two-class system in the church, the mature and the not-so-mature. He wouldn't do it. That's why I said to you, the contrast in chapter 2 is only between spiritual, those in Christ, and unspiritual, those without Christ. So, so don't be misled. There's no higher doctrine set aside in the Bible for the equivalent of whoever we are, you know, the special forces or the Navy SEALs. Because if there was one lesson for one group and another lesson for another group, then that would mean Paul would have lied in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Right? Because, okay, we gave you Jesus Christ and him crucified, but in a back room somewhere with the real crack group, we gave him higher level teachings of Jesus. Okay, think with me for a moment. Isn't that the kind of thing we hear so often in our day? You know, leave your plain old church and come to advanced classes at place X, right? Bring your sleeping bag and bring some money and come on over because we are so serious about Jesus and you know that they're not serious about Jesus. That's, that's near cult stuff. And we have to be careful. The contrast here is between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. It is not between a higher and lower level Christian teaching. Uh, think, what would Paul pull from? Is there a better book on the gospel than Romans or Galatians? Is there a better book on the, on the Christolo Christological manifestation of Jesus Christ? That's a pretty fancy phrase that I just made up in my head. It's true, but I just made it up in my head. Is there a better book in Ephesians for that? Are there better gospels tucked away somewhere that we don't have? No, the only distinction the Bible makes is not between higher and low, lower level instruction. The only distinction is between the arrangement of that instruction. The ability of the listener to comprehend the instruction. That's why I mentioned chapter 3 in the beginning. I gave you milk, not solid food. You, you Christians are acting so worldly, even though you're in Christ, I'm, telling, I'm approaching you as a worldly person. I had to start all over again. Same information, but it's just like we started all over again. So that's important that you understand that. The, the, by and large, the problem to understanding the Bible is not an intellectual problem. By and large, it's a moral problem. Well, who said that? Well, Jesus said that. Do you remember the parable of the seed? Okay, why can't one group 
understand what's being said. Is there something wrong with the seed? Oh, no, there's nothing wrong with the seed. Oh, my gosh, this people die for the gospel. There's nothing wrong with the gospel. It's the soil that it goes into. Life's worries, life's riches, life's pleasures, and the desire for other things, says Jesus, choke the word, making it unfruitful. Now, do some Christians understand the Scripture better? Yes. Are some more reflection of Jesus Christ than others? Well, certainly. Are some moving along quicker than others? Well, yes. But... 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In fact, all you have to do is turn the page and you'll see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6b and 7. Do not go beyond what is written. Then you'll not take pride in one man against another. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? That's the whole argument to, to achieve unity. So it's like this, sir, excuse me, we've, we've noticing that you've really got it together and, you, and, and you've really got this Christian thing down pat. Tell us your secret. Well, it's about time somebody noticed. Eh. Wrong answer. Back of the line. No, this is the answer. What I have received in God's grace, I received by God's grace. That's the only answer that we can give. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Okay, that's the first question. Who are the mature, Paul speaks of, every genuine Christian? Question number two then, what does he mean by secret wisdom or a wisdom that has been hidden? That's verse seven. Well, the short answer is, there's never a short answer. (laughs) I'll try to make it short. This is the redemptive plan of God, which began from all eternity. There was a time when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit determined that only the Son would be the Savior. And we would never know this if God did not tell this to us by His Spirit through His Word. So we know that what happened in the garden and would led to a cross and ended with an empty tomb is now being revealed how? By the preaching of God's Word, by the preaching of Christ. Because it wasn't until after the cross and after the resurrection that gospel realities became apparent to the people of that day. So think with me. There were the Old Testament writings that were pointing to the one who would rescue God's people and establish God's kingdom. But they couldn't see it all. They could not see everything. Some of it was hidden. And you get glimpses of this in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53, Ezekiel 16, and a few other verses. And so then when Christ comes and he walks this earth and he dies our death and he seals our pardon, even the disciples would not have a full understanding until when? post-resurrection and they had some sit-down meals and meetings with Jesus and Luke tells us this Luke chapter 24 verse 45 he opened their minds so that they could understand the scripture so that they could preach repentance and forgiveness of sins in Christ's name and then you see that gospel clarity when Peter preaches at Pentecost and then you see that gospel clarity as Paul writes the in the epistles The gospel, a wisdom from God, has been hidden, is now, if you would, being spoken. Now people can know it. And that's why he writes what he writes in verse 8. Do you see it there? The best and brightest say, yeah, right. This is all foolishness. But that was to be expected. If the rulers of this age understood the message of the cross, the wisdom of God, on a human level, Christ would have never been crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus was the greatest act of injustice and cruelty that has ever been committed. How could this have happened? Well, verse 8. But here's the wonderful thing. This is what, one of the things that make God's, God so wonderful. 
the eternal plan of God, the wisdom of God, turns the whole thing upside down, and he takes a horrible situation, and he turns it into a wonderful situation. That is God's specialty. He takes some bad things that come our way, and he pulverizes those things, and he shapes them, and he makes them good things. That's the song, right? God makes beautiful things, beautiful things out of the dust. So God takes the greatest injustice of humanity, and he flips it, and he makes it the greatest opportunity for humanity that's ever existed. Incidentally, and in passing, a number of commentators look at verse 8, and they say verse 8 is actually the spiritual world. So the powers and principalities and um, uh, spiritual wickedness places in the heavenly places that we read about in Ephesians 6. And so commentators said, this is not about rulers, rulers. This is about the demonic world. But there's a huge problem with that. The huge problem is, is that the demonic world always understood the message of the cross. Let me just give you one example. This is in Mark's gospel. Chapter 1, a man is possessed by a demon. They cry out, verse 24, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And again, verse 34, the demons were silent because they knew who he was. But Peter, when he's preaching to the crowds, Acts chapter 3, you acted in ignorance, he says, as did your leaders. And Jesus himself said the same thing on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. They don't understand. So you can see this verse, verse 8, it's important why we say this. It's not about the demonic world. It's about this world, this historical context. If they would have known, it wouldn't happen. But as we said, God takes beautiful, bad things and he makes them beautiful things. Okay, that's our first heading, the wisdom we speak. Well, what is the wisdom that we speak? It's Christ and him crucified. Is there anything better? There's anything better after search, tell me. There's not. Well, who, who are the mature? Those who have repented and placed their trust in Jesus Christ. That is how powerful and that is how glorious the gospel is because God has no basement where he keeps the less desirables. Be mindful of that. Okay, why does Paul say God's wisdom was secret and hidden? Because it was and it is. And it's only as Christ is proclaimed that the Spirit of God awakens and God, that person and God is pleased to save. Okay, and that takes us to our second heading, doesn't it? The Spirit who searches. And that begins in verse 9 there. And what Paul is declaring here is that every human being, if left to themselves, are ignorant of God's will and they're ignorant of God's purpose. So what Paul does is he uses a loose quotation in verse 9 of Isaiah 64, 4 and 65, 17 and says this. The human senses, eyes and ears cannot grasp God's wisdom on its own. In other words, this is a, a empirical evidence. Evidence based on observation, human observation and human experience. Eye and ear. That is vastly insufficient to remove one's ability to understand God's wisdom in Christ. And even human reason, the mind, verse 9b, the mind cannot conceive what God has prepared for those who love him. So do you see what he's saying? On our own, listen carefully, on our own, no one can understand God's wisdom in Christ. So verse 9 is saying, as we often say around here, there's no intellectual road to God. Apologetics are wonderful and they are helpful, but without the Spirit of God doing what is needed, apologetics, as great as they are, are insufficient. Because no one has ever come to Christ on their own by deductive reasoning or by their own observation. No one. And verse 9 then is not exclusively about heaven. 
It's not, it will lead to heaven, sure, but it's about the depths of the gospel graces. And what Paul wants us to know then is how the third person of the Trinity, namely the Holy Spirit, is the strength behind all of this. And he wants us to know that so that readers would have a solid, steel confidence in the truth as it's written in Jesus. And that begins in verse 10. In fact, if I was taking notes, I'd write verse 10 and then I'd write the word revelation. Because that's exactly what is happening. But God has revealed it, His wisdom, His Son, His gospel to us by His Spirit. Now the us in the passage is not us here. Not yet. It's written in the emphatic in Greek. So it cannot refer to every Christian. Not yet. Because none of us here were the recipients of divine, direct revelation like the apostles were. So it's not us. Not yet, and certainly not in this way. Paul's building a case here. So again, back to our context. The context is disunity. Everyone thinks they know better. Everyone thinks they know the Spirit. I know what the Spirit is doing. I can tell you what the Spirit is doing. Group 1, group 2, group 3, group 4. Paul's medicine, chapter 4, verse 6 of 1 Corinthians, don't go beyond what is written. Because what is written, verse 10 of chapter 2, was revealed to us, apostles, by God's Spirit. Paul says the exact same thing by way of principle in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Where the mystery of Christ, including Jews and Gentiles, becoming one man in Christ, this is what the Bible says, has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. And these apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. In other words, God is the authority of revelation. The Spirit is the communicator of that revelation, and the apostles are the original recipients of that revelation, and every one of us here are benefactors and stewards of that divine revelation. It's good, isn't it? It just, it just removes all the potential error that we can have, all the subjective kind of hoo-ha that we might have in our mind. Think of it this way. We received it from the apostles who wrote it by the Spirit who received it from God. And what Paul does then to, to reinforce that truth, verse 10, the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Then he, he says the Spirit is the searcher. He's the only one who can do everything that was needed in this examination of God to reveal what we could never know on our own. I mean, think, who can conceive of, 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 a, of a being who has no beginning? Who can conceive of a being who, who is endless? How else would we know that God is immutable, that God is omniscient, that He's everywhere all the time, all over the world, fully? God is all-powerful, eternal. How would we know that God is committed to sin-filled people like me? So committed that He dies my death. Now, get your head around that one. God dies my death. And that He's committed to, to bring me safely into His heaven. Now, how in the world could we know that on our own? Well, the answer is that we can't. That's why he writes in verse 10, the revelation, the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. And that's why we can speak with conviction Sunday by Sunday, or on a Monday, or on a Tuesday with our friends. We speak with conviction about the truth as it is in Jesus from His Word. And that's why I said verse 14 is a central text. The man without the spirit, the sukikos, does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. It's absolute foolishness to him. Well, why is it? Because he's unconverted. He's unconverted. And so what Paul does to kind of help this, uh, this line of thought is he gives an example. Verse 11. 
For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except this man's spirit within him? It's a rhetorical question. No one can know. Right? And these people go around thinking, I know what you're thinking and all that kind of stuff. But that's not true. Uh, we, our, even our spouses don't know everything that we're thinking. The adolescent, the teenager says, you don't understand me. You, they're right. We can't fully understand them. No one knows us like us. No one knows our thoughts right now. Nobody does. Tell me what I'm thinking right now. Give me a second. Only take a second. <laughs> okay, I got it. Tell me what I'm thinking. Let me tell you what I'm thinking. It's the same thing I was thinking in the first service. Can I tell you what I'm thinking? I'm thinking about a month ago, my wife told me that there was no way I was going to be able to fix the dryer without any working parts. I told her, let me just get down there and I'll fix the thing. She said, you can't go down. I said, I'm going down. She said, don't go down. I said, woman, I'm going down. A lot nicer than that. And I went down and I fixed the thing. Now, did anybody know that I was thinking that? Would everybody like to know what Nicole's thinking right now? I'm sure one of us will find out later on. (laughs) The searching spirit is the revealing spirit. Revelation, revealing the deep things of God to the apostles, preserved for us in the scriptures. In other words, that's the second part then, inspiration. Revelation, God speaks it. Inspiration, the Spirit applies it. Well, how does the Spirit apply it? Well, that's verse 12. The Christian has not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Okay, this is Paul's case. He's building this confidence here. We can understand the truth. We can be fastened to the truth. And we can be firmly fixed in the truth. Well, how in the world? How can we be dogmatic about essential things? Verse 13. We're not reaching here. This is what we speak. This is what we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words. Logos is the word taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truth. Logos in spiritual words. Logos. Logos taught by the Spirit, expressing logos in in logos. There's a good quote that says, Speaking makes a ready man. Reading makes a full man. Writing makes an exact man. And that's what the Spirit is doing when He gives us the Word. It's exact. Yeah, we might have trouble understanding the thing, but it's exact. Verse 10, God revealed it. Verse 13, the Spirit inspires it. Every word, the plenary and errant word of God, the intention of the author, poetry, parable, history, allegory, theology, every word understood in its context is true. And you see, again, the problem of disunity, we are constrained by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Scripture. Constrained by the Holy Spirit through the Holy Scripture. And that takes us right back to verse 14, doesn't it? The searching Spirit reveals God's truth, inspires God's truth in words, and now the Spirit illuminates God's truth, verse 14, but the unspiritual person can't get it. They are unspiritual. There is no illumination. Spiritual, in Christ, you accept it and understand it. Unspiritual, outside of Christ, you cannot understand it. Okay, so then if that's the case, then how in the world can we be removed from that predicament? Well, it's very, very simple. If you hear God's voice as Christ is preached or proclaimed, do not harden your heart. Because you can't lock yourself in a room, light a hundred candles, and meditate seeking the answer within yourself. That will not work. And you can't go up to a high mountain and wait for a voice, a sign, or a feeling. That will not work. Why will that not work? Man as man, man qua man, man on his own, does not have the resources, the ability on his own to accept and believe what the Spirit of God proclaims through the Word of God. Now you think with me. Think about what I just said. 
And you should have a question. And this is the question. How in the world then, how in the world is someone going to know if they can't know? Right? Isn't that a good question? I mean, that would be, this would be the ultimate act of futility, preaching. The ultimate act, a waste of time. We should be home eating donuts, watching uh, Face the Nation if it's even still on. It would seem that way. But it is not that way. It is that way if we relied on human wisdom. But this is what the Bible teaches. As the word of God is proclaimed, the spirit of God at his discretion begins to remove their stony heart and unplug their ears and open their eyes with a heart now of flesh and ready to give an answer to God. And when that yes answer comes, it's all God. It's all God. Which is why, if you think about it, some of us might, hear, might be here for years. And we've been working through the mechanics of a Sunday morning at West Coast Chapel. But we're not spiritual, which means we're not converted and we're not saved. You have never actually responded to God's truth. So I have to ask you this morning, has God opened your mind? Are you getting this? Do you understand this? Verse 14 gives us that distinction if we don't. Okay, our time is going way too quick. The wisdom we speak, Christ and Him crucified, the Spirit who searches, this is revelation, the Spirit searches God's truth, inspiration, the Spirit gives the truth of God in spiritual words, illumination, the Spirit enables us to understand these words that were preserved for us by the Apostles' writing. Then our final point then, the judgment they can't make. It's going to be very brief. Okay, this is the context here. The judgment is between a spiritual and unspiritual person. It's not between a converted and converted. It's between a converted and unconverted man. So when an unconverted person comes to us and says, you know, you don't really believe all that Jesus stuff and the Bible and the cross and bleeding and a man dying and judgment and wrath and heaven and worship and hell and all that stuff, come on, that is foolishness. When they come to us that way, the Christian is not subject to their judgment. Absolutely not. Well, why not? Verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Answer, no one but God himself. Okay, And because of the searching spirit of God, even the deep things of God, through revelation and then inspiration and then illumination, we come to know and grow in our understanding. And that's why Paul writes what he writes in verse 16b. We have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ from the scriptures. And that doesn't mean we don't need teachers. It doesn't mean that we don't need to learn. And it doesn't mean it isn't hard. It simply means that every Christian who gets on their knees, if you would, and says to the Spirit of God, to the Holy Spirit, you are my teacher. Show me myself. Show me my Savior. Make this book live in me. God will do it. God will do it. How do you think I start every week? Holy cow, this scares, this scares me every week. And the only way I can do it is just what I said. You get on your knees and you say, make this book live in me. Please, please, because on my own, I'm just shot. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing good's going to happen. Guess what God does? To the person who does that, God gives that reality. God gives that reality. But an unspiritual person cannot grasp this. They cannot grasp this. So, so we're going to conclude. You, you may be here this morning and, and you're never satisfied. You're always searching for something, something more. Discontentment is, is your norm. And, and you, if you're honest, you're like, the Bible is foggy to me. I, I can't get it. I can't get it. If that is you, then I, I have to ask you to please consider 
that you might be unspiritual. You might be unconverted. You, you might be without God and without hope in the world. And, and nobody here that's in Christ wants you that way. So I can plead with you on the authority of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ offers himself to you this morning, right now. Thank you for your attention this morning. Let's bow and pray. So, Father, we give glory to your name this, this morning. We pray what we've already prayed. We would ask, God, that you would make this book live in us, that you would show us ourselves, and that you would show us our Savior, and that you would make this book live in us. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen.